Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Thank you for tuning into this episode of What the Politics. Today, we are going to be talking about the CIA and drugs like LSD. And we're also going to talk about the mad scientist, as our guest calls him, behind these kind of projects back in the 1950s and 60s. So I'm going to go ahead and let our guests introduce themselves so we can get right into the conversation. I'm Stephen Kinzer. Mm-hmm. I'm a former New York Times foreign correspondent. Uh, I have written about 10 books. And I now teach international relations at Brown University. Okay, so now we're going to get into the latest book that you just published called Poisoner in Chief. So some background information. Um, Poisoner in Chief, the, the setting is the you know CIA. Um, and during the 1960s, um, what kind of projects were happening during that time? I mentioned to you a moment ago that I'd written 10 books. Uh, Some of the stuff that's in a number of those books shocked some readers, I know, and much of it was surprising to me as I discovered this hidden histories of the United States and its involvement in the world. But I have to say that writing this last book, Poisoner-in-Chief, was the first time that I have ever really been shocked. Mm. I still can't wrap my mind around the fact that the CIA did these things, that there was such a program as MK Ultra, and that there was such a mad scientist as Sidney Gottlieb at the CIA directing what amounted to uh, the most intense and extreme experiments on human beings that have ever been conducted by any official or agency of the U.S. government. Uh, So the deeper I got into this story, the more horrific it became. And uh, I'm still trying to grasp uh, the full scope and meaning of it. One of the frustrating aspects of writing this book is that when the guy who directed MKUltra, this mind control project at the CIA, retired Mm -hmm. in the mid-1970s, he and his boss at the CIA who was also retiring then, the director of the CIA, Richard Helms, both agreed that the records of MKUltra could never see the light of day. And in violation of federal law, they ordered seven crates of documents about MKUltra to be destroyed. Mm. As a result, a great part of the archive has disappeared, and Poisoner-in-Chief is my attempt to try to weave together the story from the little uh, traces that remain. Mm -hmm. And so kind of getting into into what exactly Poisoner-in-Chief is about, who it's about, and the project MKUltra. What what was MKUltra? Just a little bit of background information for people who don't know. In the early 1950s, at the height of the intense beginning of the Cold War, uh, Americans, particularly at the CIA, Uh, became terrified with the thought that the Soviets or or the Chinese or some communist power was discovering the key to mind control. In other words, communists had figured out a way 
to seize control of human minds. If this were true, it could be a disaster for American security. Now, it turned out that the intelligence reports and the interpretation of events that led the CIA to fear that communist countries had this secret was all false. Nonetheless, the CIA decided that it had to launch uh, an all-out program aimed at trying to find out how you could seize control of people's minds. In 1951, the CIA brought in a chemist named Sidney Gottlieb, and the director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, assigned him to put together this MK Ultra project. And Dulles gave it that name because it was ultra. It was the most important project at the CIA, although nobody knew this at the time because it was also the ultra secret. Uh, Dulles understood that if you could somehow find the key to controlling people's minds, the prize would be nothing less than global mastery. So Gottlieb, with a scientist's mind, um, made two starting decisions as he began this project. Number one, um, he figured out that before you can find a way to implant a new mind into somebody's brain, you first had to destroy the brain that was in there. So the goal should be to find a way to destroy the human mind and the human body and the human spirit so that somehow a new mind could be put in there. Second observation he made, also as a scientist, was let's see what research is already out there. What have people already discovered in this field? So he looked around and asked himself, who has information on how to destroy human minds and human bodies? Well, this was the early 1950s. So he immediately realized the ones who have this information are the doctors who worked in the Nazi concentration camps mm. and their Japanese counterparts. So he hired those people. They came into the CIA. And during the entire 1950s, Gottlieb had the right to carry out grotesque experiments on prisoners and others inside the United States, including people who were totally unaware of what was happening to them. In addition, he had what amounted to a license to kill granted by the U.S. government. He could go to Germany or the Philippines and tell the CIA station there that he wanted a certain number of human subjects. And they would then bring in war prisoners or refugees or anyone they could scoop up. And these would be people on whom Gottlieb would carry out his grotesque experiments, including a number that were fatal. After the whole project was going on for almost a decade, Gottlieb finally concluded, there's actually no such thing as mind control. Mm -hmm. But in the interim, we have no idea how many people died and how many lives were destroyed by a CIA project that nobody even knew existed. Mm -hmm. And uh, from a speech that I saw you give, um, one of the people who was hired was actually someone from the Nuremberg, Nuremberg trial, someone who was found innocent at the Nuremberg trials because the CIA wanted to hire that person. Is that right? Absolutely. So the chief of biological warfare research for the Nazis uh, was a guy named Dr. Kurt Bluma. He ran what was disguised as a cancer institute that was actually uh, an effort by Nazis to weaponize germs and plagues and poisons. 
So when the CIA looked around for people who were expert on that subject, they naturally found this guy. And where did they find him? But as you say, uh, in the defendant's dock at the doctor's trial in Nuremberg, he was on trial with the worst of the concentration camp doctors and the designers of those horrific so-called experiments in which so many unfortunates were killed in Nazi concentration camps. So the American government essentially looked at the defendant list and they saw Kurt Bluma and figured, you know, we don't want to hang this guy. We want to hire this guy. So since that tribunal was presided over by American military officers, uh, arrangements were made and Bloma was found not guilty. Although people who had apparently much less to do with atrocities were found guilty. Uh, and sure enough, Bloma became a collaborator with the CIA. It's one of the strange footnotes to MK Ultra. Think of this. So Sidney Gottlieb was very different from the other officers in the early CIA. They were all silver spoon products of the American aristocracy who went to the same colleges and then went to the same private schools and worked in the same investment banks and so forth. Gottlieb wasn't like that. Uh, he was Jewish, the son of Jewish immigrants, grew up in the Bronx and went to City College of New York. Uh, so if, if his parents, Sidney Gottlieb's parents, had not decided to emigrate, if they had stayed in Europe, Young Sidney would have been born there and quite likely would have been scooped up in one of those Nazi raids sent to a concentration camp and possibly become a victim in one of those concentration camp so-called experiments. But as it happened, he grew up in the United States and he didn't seem to have any hesitation in working shoulder to shoulder with those same Nazi doctors. Mm -hmm. So now so let's. I mean, that was what you just said was pretty mind blowing. Let's yeah. just say that. Yeah, it's pretty heavy to think about. Um, but to go into your background and your before we go into Sydney Gottlieb, um, what you're saying sounds crazy. You know, like the CIA, it sounds like a conspiracy theory or the CIA is doing this and doing that and has all these has their hands in a variety of things. Did when you were writing this book, publishing this book, did you have any fears or did you have any sorts of bouts of paranoia where you're like I'm being watched or or any sort of hesitancy for for publishing the book because of who's involved and what it's about? No, and I'll tell you why. I think it's mainly because it happened so long ago. Mm -hmm. The CIA has now adopted an attitude towards the MKUltra project, which I think uh, is probably the smart move. In fact, this started right after MKUltra was first made public. One of the victims' families was brought into the White House to be given a personal apology by President Gerald Ford, and then was sent. Oh, the family was sent over to meet the new CIA director, William Colby, and Colby told them there were problems of supervision. Some of our people were out of control in those days. That was what they were saying in the 70s, and that's what they're still saying. Essentially, it is that um, Godly went a little crazy, and nobody knew what he was doing, and uh, it really doesn't have anything to do with the CIA today. It's ancient history. Um, so in a way, this I think the CIA is right to disassociate itself in that way from it. And sometimes I think that this might have been one of the reasons why the CIA 
chose to hire such an unusual character as Sidney Gottlieb to run this project. Why not hire another one of those waspy guys that went to Princeton and golfs with them and goes to the same tennis clubs? Maybe it's because they thought whoever runs MK Ultra is going to have to do some horrific things. It's going to be brutal. It's going to be bloody. People will be killed. And we don't want to know about it. Mm. And I think that was part of it. Don't don't tell us what you're doing. Probably later on, there might be problems about this, because when you kill a lot of people, sooner or later, people are going to be asking questions. We don't want that to happen to somebody who's in our group. So let's hire some guy that we wouldn't care about. Uh, they hired this Jewish guy who has a stutter and a limp and he's from the Bronx so that later on we can always say, ah, we had one crazy guy. And that's exactly what happened. Maybe they had thought about this in advance and realized he's the perfect patsy. Let's put it all on Sydney. This is a way not only of, uh, obviate, of absolving the CIA responsibility, but it absolves the whole U.S. government. So that's the attitude I got from the CIA. It was kind of bemused, like, we agree with you. Wasn't that a little wild? Uh, that, what a mischievous guy. So uh, I, I feel like rather than be angry at someone looking into this, the CIA is actually quite clever to say, well, that may all be true. But of course, that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that's the attitude they've had. I wouldn't be surprised, of course, if 50 years from now, there's another Stephen Kinzer who writes about what's happening in 2021. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll, be happy, we'll be just as astonished. And the CIA will then say, oh, well, back in 2021, there were problems of supervision, but we fixed all this now. <laughs> And I want to go ahead and talk about kind of the ethical um, considerations and justifications when it comes to this. And, you know, when I was uh, uh, researching some of the information, you know, for this podcast, kind of the only thing that I could think of that was kind of a a parallel to this situation is the Zimbardo Stanford prison experiment. Um, So would you say that those experiments share any of the same ethical concerns? You know, I know Zimbardo is kind of still looked at today in a negative light. And would you say that's true for Gottlieb as well? Well, the big difference between the Stanford experiments and MKUltra was scale, scope. This guy, Gottlieb, had the entire CIA at his service. He was flying Mm -hmm. all over the world to carry out grotesque experiments. I visited the the house in uh, Germany, Mm -hmm. which I think was probably the first CIA secret prison ever. And the guy who owns it took me down into the basement and said, uh, these storage rooms were the cells where the CIA doctors carried out those experiments, which were actually just continuations of the experiments that those doctors had carried out in the concentration camps just down the road from here, only a few years earlier. And the guy also told me, um, the people in the neighborhood all know about this. It's not a secret. They know this was the CIA torture house. That's what they call it. Um, and they've t- the old timers have told me that the bodies of people who were experimented to death in this house were buried out in the forests in places that are now covered over with apartment blocks and shopping malls. So uh, this was a project that was worldwide in scope and godly was allowed to kill people when necessary. Now you ask about the ethical considerations in that sense, 
there might be some comparison. I think the key uh, factor you need to bear in mind when trying to grasp how the United States government could have allowed this to happen is the climate of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a sense in those days, and certainly fed by the CIA, but also shared by its officers, that the United States was under imminent danger of apocalypse. We could be vaporized at any moment by a predatory Soviet Union armed with nuclear weapons. Therefore, anything that we could do to protect ourselves was justified. And the loss of a few lives or even a few hundred lives in a project which might possibly lead us to some breakthrough that would be decisive in the Cold War was considered to be a very small sacrifice. Definitely. And can we talk about some of those, um, you know, the the, the drugs and the the, um, the things that they were using? Of what, yeah, what yeah. Ultra is about and, and the kind of like resurgence for people are, are, are interested in these kind of hallucinogenic drugs. This is a very interesting area. So Gottlieb carried out an unbelievable range of uh, experiments. He mixed drug cocktails at a lab that the CIA ran out at Fort Detrick in Maryland. He was endlessly imaginative. You put in different kinds of sedatives and poisons and spores and stimulants and see if these things, along with electroshock and sensory deprivation, could provide the key to destroying some human mind. Um, Sometimes I wonder, since these experiments were so amazingly original and grotesquely innovative, could he have been imagining them while he was tripping on acid? Mm. By his own account, he took LSD more than 200 times. I hate to think that he was actually observing some of the experiments while he was on LSD, but maybe he thought of them while he was. So Gottlieb was completely fascinated with LSD. He was the first LSD maven. Um, He thought that it really might be the key to finding mind control. It was so powerful in such small doses, plus being colorless and odorless, Um, So he focused very deeply on LSD. And as I said, he was a regular user himself. In 1953, Sidney Gottlieb persuaded the CIA to buy the entire world supply of LSD. And it did that. that, They bought it from the Sandoz Laboratory in Switzerland, which was the sole producer in those days. Gottlieb went on to use this LSD in several ways. Um, in some experiments, uh, he probably destroyed human minds forever. For example, I found the records of one experiment carried out at the U.S. federal prison in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, In this experiment, seven African-American inmates were isolated in a cell and given what were described as triple and quadruple doses Mm. of LSD every day for 77 days Mm. without being told what was happening to them. So this would have been one of those experiments aimed at seeing if you could destroy a human mind that way. We don't know, uh, we never saw the files, but I guess the answer must be yes. I'm, I'm sure you could. And I've often wondered, 
what happened to those seven guys? Mm-hmm. Did they ever know what happened to them? Did they ever recover? We'll never know. So some of Gottlieb's LSD experiments were horrific in that way. But there was another side to them. Gottlieb also wanted to know how ordinary people would respond to LSD in a clinical setting. So he wanted to carry out experiments to answer this question. The CIA, of course, doesn't have laboratories and hospitals. uh, But what he did was to create two fake medical foundations that were actually the CIA. These foundations contacted hospitals and clinics around the United States and told them, we're interested in funding research into this new psychedelic drug, LSD. We will pay you to do this. We'll send you the LSD. You uh, advertise, you tell people exactly what it is, and uh, you just have to write up reports for us and, and send them in. So overnight, a whole new market for uh, this research grew up since it was lucrative. Who were among the very first people who got Sidney Gottlieb's LSD from the CIA? Okay, one was Allen Ginsberg, the radical poet who went on to become a great promoter of LSD. Another was Robert Hunter, the uh, lyricist for the Grateful Dead, who brought all the other Grateful Dead guys in to try LSD. Um, Another one was Ken Kesey, who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, All these people loved the LSD that they got from the CIA, although, of course, they had no idea where it was coming from. They all brought their friends in to try it. This was the beginning of how LSD leaked out of CIA laboratories and into the mass public. I found an interview with John Lennon in which he was asked about LSD. And he said, we must always remember to thank the CIA. Now, he didn't know. He'd never heard of Sidney Godley. Nobody had. But if he did, he would have said, we must always remember to thank Sidney Gottlieb. And the irony of all of this, of course, is that the drug that Sidney Gottlieb hoped would give the CIA the key to controlling the world actually wound up fueling a generational rebellion that was aimed at destroying everything the CIA believes in. When it comes to what ended up happening to Sidney, uh Gottlieb uh after well yeah a- after these operations these experiments I mean he was still a part of the United I from my understanding he retired but if you want to go into more detail about the outcome of of his life then please do Gottlieb went on to hold several important positions at the CIA he retired in the mid-1970s still a young man in his 19- in his 50s um He wanted to go off and spend the rest of his life uh, out in the world with his wife. But uh, after a couple of years of voyaging, he got a most unwelcome message. Uh, It was essentially said uh, it was from the general counsel at the CIA. And it said something like uh, somebody's figured out that you exist and uh, you have to come back to Washington. So he was brought back to Washington and he had to testify in private before investigators twice. However, the investigators were only looking into one piece of what he did, which was his involvement in making the poisons to kill foreign leaders. He was the one who made all those poison cigars to kill Castro and the poison toothpaste to kill Lumumba and the poison that was supposed to be put in Joe and Lai's 
rice bowl in Indonesia. He made the suicide pills for CIA agents and U-2 pilots. So they were fascinated by this at the Senate. But actually, that was not the key part of Gottlieb's life. What was really important was MKUltra. In the poison-making business, he was just a pharmacist. If he hadn't done it, somebody else would have done it. So they never got into MKUltra. And he was able to retire. There were sporadic bursts of news about MKUltra. He always refused to speak about it. Um, and uh, from what we heard, in his later years, uh, he was uh, troubled by this. Um, the rabbi that worked with him said that he uh, seemed like he there was something he would never want to talk about. He, he couldn't be brought to talk about it. I talked to the reporter Seymour Hirsch, uh, who went out to see him during this period when he was retired and living in Virginia. And Seymour Hirsch told me uh, he was a broken man. He was racked by guilt. If he had been a Catholic, he would have gone to a monastery. He may have had a troubled uh, later life, and uh, he was about to go on trial for uh, for one of the abuses where uh, in a case that had been almost 20 years waiting to come to trial. And just before it came to trial, uh, Gottlieb suddenly died. Some of the people around him who followed the case thought he might have committed suicide uh, in order not to be the instrument by which all of this might have become public. Uh, so uh, I would say he uh, didn't have such an untroubled retirement. But as I said, he never spoke about MK Ultra. And after he died, uh, his widow brought the four children together and made them promise never to speak ever about their father and what he had done. You mentioned earlier, you know, one of the the key players in this um, these experiments or this situation, um, Frank Olson, and um, how his family, you know, was brought into the White House and, and formally apologized to by the president. Um, so, could you talk a little bit more about Frank Olson and just who he was and his role in this? I have a whole chapter about the Olson story in mm -hmm. the Poisoner in Chief book. It's really one of the most fascinating pieces of the MK Ultra story. Maybe it was inevitable that given the grotesque brutalities of these experiments, somebody in the small group of scientists uh, who were involved would have an attack of conscience. This is just what happened. And Frank Olson was the chemist who finally decided after watching experiments, apparently in which people were killed using poisons that he had designed, uh, just came to the conclusion that he didn't want to do this anymore. Uh, and he told this to the people at the CIA. In fact, he said that he not only wanted to leave MKUltra, he wanted to leave the CIA. Now, this person had in his mind some of the deepest secrets of the United States. If, if the reality of MKUltra had been revealed in the mid-1950s, it would have been devastating, not just for the CIA, but for the United States. Um, so the short of it is that uh, in... Uh, on a November evening in 1953, Frank Olson, who was in a hotel room with one of his closest CIA colleagues from MKUltra, went out the hotel window from the 13th floor and he died upon hitting the pavement. Um, this was described uh, immediately in the newspapers as the suicide of an army scientist. Well, first of all, he was not an army scientist. He was a CIA scientist. Um, and the suicide idea has come under considerable review now, including by the family. 
So when the family was brought into the White House, uh, Ford's essential line was, oh, the CIA gave Gottlieb, um, uh, Gottlieb gave uh, Frank Olson um, LSD. He reacted badly. They never should have given him the LSD and drove him to commit suicide. We're so sorry. Uh, we disturbed his mind and led him to jump out the window. And that was the narrative for a long time. But now uh, many questions have been raised, including by invest, uh, private investigators about and, and forensic scientists, whether this really was a suicide or whether the CIA would have acted on what, from their perspective, might have been an emergency situation and uh, helped him out of that window. Definitely. And I do want to say for those uh, interested more in the Frank Olson story, there is actually a Netflix mini docu-series. It's six parts um, and it's called Wormwood. And that's uh, basically the story of Frank Olson told through his son, Eric. Um, so for those who are interested in that. And yeah, due to Netflix session, of course, um, yeah. this will be our, our last question for you. Um, but when it comes to the powers that check the CIA, um, what are those? Are there any sort of powers that check um, what happens at the CIA and, and to the ethical considerations and lessons learned from instances like this and how it can be, I don't want to say prevented in the future because I'm not sure if prevention is really their, <laughs> their um, outcome, but in terms of checking what they do and, and uh, the, the limits of what they should do, what, what is that, if there is any? I think the limits on what the CIA is free to do are, are actually very loose and pliable. A lot of it has to do with the president and the director of the CIA. And so many CIA projects are self-sustaining. Uh, the idea that uh, the CIA is a rogue elephant, I think, is mistaken. Mm. Um, the CIA is an action agency that carries out uh, orders from political leaders. On the other hand, the CIA also has a way to shape what those decisions are. The CIA can come in as it always did during the 1950s and tell the president, here's the situation, here's how awful it is, and this is what we recommend. So based on what the CIA says, the president makes a decision, and then the CIA carries it out. So you could argue, well, that's just the CIA doing what it's ordered. But actually, it's a little more complicated than that, because the CIA has kind of stacked the deck. I don't believe there's a substantial interest on the part of the political elite in the United States to regulate the CIA in any serious way. There have been efforts to do it going all the way back to the 1950s. Some of these efforts did succeed in the 1970s, and they, they made a marginal improvements. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it's still true that uh, in the intelligence business, not just in the CIA, but in all secret services, there is an understanding that in many cases, ignorance is an asset. You don't want to know everything that's going on. And I think that extends to the Congress. They don't want to know what the CIA is doing. They don't really have an appetite for it. Certainly inside the administration, uh, there's no appetite. So uh, I don't think that uh, controls on the CIA are substantially greater than they were back in Gottlieb's day. I still think uh, there's this idea that uh, you want to have 
plausible deniability. Therefore, don't tell me everything. We'll investigate it later and we'll condemn it. But right now we're going to do it. So uh, I wouldn't be in the least surprised if uh, projects now underway at the CIA might not one day produce the same kind of horror that uh, I confronted when I was writing Poisoner in Chief about the MK Ultra project. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, I think your your career as a journalist is so fascinating. By the way, we usually introduce ourselves at the beginning. I think we just went straight into the conversation. This is I'm Victoria and Emily. I'm Emily. Yeah. <laughs> so we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us because without, you know, guests like yourself, we, we really can't do this this podcast that we I, I think is a favorite part of, of our jobs here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, without I could put it the other way, without podcasters like you, I wouldn't be able to tell anybody about these stories so <laughs> it's like what i think about bookshop booksellers you know they're grateful to writers but mm-hmm. we're also grateful to them so we're all part of the same uh network and uh, i hope it's one that's positive Uh, I believe so, yeah. All right, everyone, that's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. Of course, you can always find us on WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're more interested in this topic of conversation that we had today with our special guest, we're going to link his book below, Poisoner in Chief, as well as the Netflix docuseries that I spoke about as well that dives a little deeper into the Frank Olson story and that's told by his son, Eric Olson. I think this was a really great conversation, something that me and Victoria were super fascinated by, just to hear kind of the secrets of the CIA back in the 1960s and how nobody knew about this and just how it's coming to kind of fruition now and, and how people are learning all of these deep, dark secrets of these experiments. So thank you so much for joining us for this conversation, and we'll see you next week.